Well, if you've been with us at any point in the last three weeks, you know that we're in a series called Being Church. We're learning what it looks like to be the body of Christ and how we can better fulfill our role as a church member. What it is that God is calling each of us into when when He calls us to be a part of His church. Specifically, what it looks like to be a part of this church here at First Pres. And so, the first week we covered the body of Christ. We talked about the many gifts that, that God has given His church throughout His people and how each of us are uniquely gifted. And that none are insignificant to their role in this body that is His body. And then after that, we talked about what it means to be church as a unified body in Christ. That that even though we are diverse and that there are many of us that have different opinions and and philosophies of ministry, God has still called us all into this one place and, and called us to unity. To be the unified body of Christ. And then last week, we talked about what it looks like to be servant first. To have a servant first mentality that when Jesus said, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you have to be last and a servant of all. And how we're not to be like the Gentiles who when they're in places of leadership, they lord it over one another. And yet, Jesus said, if you want to be in a place of leadership, it actually means that you become a servant first and foremost. And so we talked about those three primary functions so far, about what it looks like to be a church member. And as we think about those things, we actually want to be pressed forward and, okay, well then what does it look like to continue being the church? And so our passage today comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. And in this passage, we find out that Jesus Part of being a church member, part of being a member of a church means that we become a praying people. That we are a people that pray, that we get on our hands and come before God and we pray. And so hear this reading from Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. And Jesus entered the temple. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I can't even begin to imagine how I keep doing this week after week. Lord, how You have provided and how You have strengthened in moments of complete weakness, knowing, God, that I don't always have it perfectly together. And yet somehow each week, through the power of Your Spirit, You have brought it together. And Lord, today is no different. As we gather in this place, Lord, I pray that the words that we hear will just be what You desire us to hear and know about You. What You desire for us to know as a church. And God, that I would be made very small so that You could be made very great. 
and that your name would be glorified as well as Jesus's through the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we get into this topic of prayer, I actually want to start by telling you about how I first became a Christian. Um, I've shared little bits and pieces of my, of my testimony with you before about how God came into my life and moved within me and moved in the people around me in order to bring me to Him when I was a senior in high school. But here's, here's the, the coolest part about this is that when I first became a Christian, it was a family of friends that invited us to church. My parents had just separated and, and we were kind of in this broken state. And at this point in my life, I would have done anything for my mom. And so she was, so we had some family friends and they're like, will you go to church with us? And my mom wanted us all to go to church with them. And so I was like, I'll go to church. And so we went to church. And after that first church service, the youth pastor came up to me and he's like, hey, will, you, will I see you on Wednesday at youth group? And, and nothing in me wanted to go to this youth group. I was totally anti-against, did not want to be there. And yet everything, even though all of my entirety wanted to say no, I ended up saying yes. And while I didn't want to, you know, not be a man of my word. And so I went to youth group on Wednesday. And so here's, here's the important part. This is, this is where it, it comes in is, at the end of that youth service, they invited students to come up from prayer. And this was a totally new experience for me. I didn't know that this was a thing, you know, but I just kind of felt this nudge in my spirit, in my heart, like, why don't, why, you should just go up for prayer. And so I went up for prayer, and it wasn't anything specific. There was, it's not like there was any kind of like, real altar call or, or the sinner's prayer being offered before me. It was simply just come up and receive prayer and allow someone to speak to God on your behalf and then speak into your life through this intimate moment of prayer with God. Now, I don't know that there's anything significant about that moment except that when I think back to the moment that I accepted Christ in my heart, it was that moment of prayer. I didn't say anything. I didn't confess anything. I simply was prayed for. And that's the moment that I say that I came to faith in Jesus. It was in that moment of prayer in youth group. But here's what's even more interesting is much later... I found out that the family that invited us to church, that invited us to come and visit, the way that I got plugged in this youth group, this mom had actually been picking me and her son up from school every day for a year and taking us to work because we worked at the same place. And so she had been picking us up and taking us to work and what I found out is that in that year, every single day that I got in her car, she was praying for me. And I had no idea, I was none the wiser, and yet she prayed every day for me. And that I would come to know Christ. It was prayer. I truly believe that it was prayer that changed the trajectory of my life. That God 
in his sovereignty used the prayers of this mother and used the prayer at a youth group to enrapture my heart. Prayer was powerful. And so I am so grateful that in my Christian walk, I have been surrounded by people that pray. I'm grateful that I have been in churches that saw prayer as fundamental and foundational to the entirety of church, to the entirety of the life of a Christian. I am grateful that I've been a part of churches that made prayer a priority both individually and corporately. And I've seen how churches that pray flourish and how churches that don't flounder. And so as I think about these places that I have been, these these paths that I've walked that have been so wrapped up in prayer, how prayer has changed my life, I can't help to start to think, do we all find ourselves in that place? What is your relationship to prayer? Do you pray often? Do you have set times during the day that you pray that you've set aside? Do you pray in the mornings when you wake up? Do you pray at meals? Do you pray at night before you go to bed? In what kinds of moments are you praying? Are you the kind of person that prays in times of pain, in times of suffering? Maybe you only pray in times of grief or loss. But are you also praying in those moments of joy and peace? Are you praying with others? Do you pray with your spouse, with your children, with your grandchildren? Do you pray with your friends? Are you praying with your neighbors? Do you pray with strangers? And who or what are you praying for? Are you praying for yourself? Are you praying for fellow members of the body of Christ? Are you praying for me? Are you praying for your elders? Are you praying for our staff? Are you praying for our church? Are you praying for our city? Are you praying for our county or our state or our nation or our world? I ask you these questions because they're the exact same questions that I'm continually asking myself. Am I praying? Am I praying to God? Am I praying for people? Am I praying the right prayers? Am I praying at all? Am I even thinking about praying? And it's not just a question about if you are praying. But it's a question of whether or not we are praying. Is the church offering opportunities for prayer? Sure, in Sunday morning worship, we have plenty of moments of prayer throughout, but are we encouraging consistent times of corporate prayer with one another? 
Are we encouraging individual times of prayer in the secret place? Are we praying in our meetings that we have about church business? Are we praying in every gathering where we come together? I think the answer ultimately is, yeah, we do. In a lot of contexts, in a lot of places within our church, we do pray. But, I even have to ask myself sometimes, because I know I catch myself sometimes. But when we pray, are we just reciting words? Are we just trying to put ourselves in a place, in a position where people hear what we have to say rather than actually coming in contact with God because of what we say? Are we actually communing with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? We enter into these places of prayer. And I think that this call to prayer is so clear about what it means to be church what it means to be the body of Christ. And it is my prayer today that we hear these words of Christ and not necessarily feel condemnation because He's never calling us to that place. Nor conviction, but to deeper understanding about the place of prayer in our individual lives, but more importantly, in our corporate life with one another as the church. And so as we get into this passage today, I want us to first think about the context that's taking place here. And this is actually like a really great passage to end up in today, because what's happening in this passage is right before Jesus enters the temple, he enters Jerusalem. This is the moment of Jesus' triumphal entry. How appropriate that as we begin this season of Lent on this Sunday together, that we would actually have a passage in which we're talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus as he enters into his last week before he hangs on the cross. And so Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people are laying palms down before him, where we get our our naming of Palm Sunday. They're laying the palms down before him, and they're crying out, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for the very last time. For within the week he will be crucified. Jesus enters the city knowing full well where it goes to, where it ends. He's entering into that city. And as he enters into the city, what's the very first thing that Jesus does? He goes to the temple. Jesus goes to the temple. Now, I have to be honest, when I think about this passage, it actually makes me think, when I travel somewhere, what is, what's the first thing that I do when I travel somewhere? Well, for me, <laughs> I look up, if I'm traveling west in particular, I look up where the nearest In-N-Out burger is, and 
Like it is like my first visit. I get off the plane, I go get whatever rental car, and I drive to In-N-Out. And I have my first meal uh, on my travels, and it is fantastic. Double-double uh, animal style with animal style fries and a Coke. Can't beat it. But here's the thing. We go to the place that is most important to us. And Jesus, in entering the city, went to the place that is of utmost importance to him. He went to the temple. He went to the very place that is the dwelling place of God on earth in that time. Because before Jesus hung on the cross and tore the veil, the meeting place of God was in the temple of God. In the holy of holies. And so where does Jesus go? He goes to his father's house. He enters into Jerusalem and he goes to make his business about his father's business. And then I start to think as I read this passage, oh, how much I am not like Jesus. How little I long to be in the place where God is. How little I desire to meet my Father in His house. Jesus was always about His Father's business. The Scriptures tell us that He only did what He saw the Father do. There was never a moment in Jesus' life and ministry that He was not doing what He saw God do in heaven. And here I am, and I call myself a Christian, a little Christ. But am I like my Jesus who beelines His time his affections and his intimacy for God? Sometimes I wonder. And then what happens when Jesus arrives in the temple? He finds that the place where his father is has been defiled by people using it as a place to sell and make a profit. He finds money changers and marketers People that only have one desire to profit off of people that want to make a connection with God. People that are in their sin and in their sadness and in their suffering. People that came to make an offering to the Lord and yet they walk in and find themselves meet, met by people that just want to take their money. And then I had a heartbreaking moment. I often wonder how much the church has turned into the very thing that Jesus despises. Have we desired to turn a prophet more than connecting people to him? You see, the church might not be in the place where we're making sacrifices anymore, where we're selling offerings for the people, selling those animals. But I think that we often fall into the trap of selling programs for profit. Our children's ministry is like an amusement park. Come visit us. 
Our youth groups go on the very best trips. We took this one ski trip to Colorado once. Our adult ministries look more like country clubs than they do like places where we can share in vulnerability, getting to know each other's hurts, struggles, and victories. What is the modern church selling people? Have we become like the profiters and marketers and money changers in Jesus' day in the temple? Or are with everything that we are trying to connect people to Christ? And if Jesus showed up at first pres today, what would he turn over? It's my prayer that he would have to turn over very little. Very, very little. But I'm sure there is something to be turned over. Because we're still human. We still make mistakes. We still choose our preferences over him all the time. I know I do. (laughs) But if Jesus showed up here, what is it that he would turn over? And so as we think about this moment where Jesus enters in the temple, what is it saying to us? Well, I think more than anything, it just serves as a warning for us to be aware that as we look to transform our church and to step into the future, that we wouldn't be ones to sell out just to bring more to us but that we, as Jesus truly desires, would become a place where people connect with God. And then the passage says that Jesus drove them out. He drove them from the temple. And this word, I need to tell you, is harsh. It is the Greek word ekbalo, which is the same word used when Jesus is casting out demons. It is a deep matter for Jesus to know that his church, that the place of God is not being used, but that it is only a place to connect with the Father. And so he drove them from the temple. The purpose of this church is to connect people to God Jesus said, it is written that my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Again, the temple was the dwelling place of God. Therefore, it must have also been the place of prayer. I actually love how Paul Miller writes and describes about prayer in his book, A Praying Life. Paul Miller says this, that a praying life feels like our family mealtimes. Because prayer is all about relationship. It's intimate and it hints at eternity. We don't think about communication or words, but about whom we are talking with. Prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect 
to God. In other words, if you want to know what prayer is, what prayer is like, ask yourself what it's like to have an intimate conversation with someone that you love, with those that would sit at your family dinner table. If you want to know what that's like, think about intimate conversations that you have with a close friend. And then you will find yourself closer to a definition of what prayer is than the thing that we've been sold in the church. That there are certain openings and certain formulas that you have to follow. Certain phrases and closings. That the church should be a house of prayer. A place where people come to connect with God, commune with God, and learn about intimacy with God. The church should be and was always supposed to be a house of prayer. So what does that actually mean for us? Right? So we know that it is clear in the scriptures that that God is calling us to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer, a place where people are connecting to God. So what does that actually mean for us? For first prayers, for each of us? I think first and foremost, it is that we become a people of of prayer, that we are a praying people, that the temple, it may no longer be in a fixed location in space and time, because it is now a people. Individuals are the dwelling place of God. His temple is in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And so as such, the people of God have a responsibility to pray. Because it is within each of us that God can commune with us. That God has made his dwelling. Jesus says it many times throughout the scriptures in the gospels. But he says this, and when you pray, not if, but when. And so there are really two expectations, I believe, in Scripture. The first is that you would pray alone. Matthew 6, 6 says, But when, not if, you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, get alone with God and know Him. Know Him as you would know a friend. Have a conversation with Him. Focus on God. Not on the right words or the right phrases to say or whether or not you're following any particular formula. Just know that He is one that wants a conversation with you. And the second is this, that that we would pray together. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 says that first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all the people. You see, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And Timothy is in Ephesus and he's leading the church in Ephesus. And Paul is saying, Timothy, what I need you to do as a part of pastoring these people as a part of leading these people, is lead them into supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings together. And that they would make them for everybody. 
Paul's speaking to Timothy in the context of corporate worship and corporate practices of prayer. He wants us to pray together. We're not just called to pray alone. We're called to pray with one another. Acts 2, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We are to pray with each other. When two or more are gathered together, there Jesus is among them. Let us be a people that doesn't not pray together. That was a terrible double negative. Let's be a people that prays together. Verse 2 in that same chapter in Timothy, Paul continues, who are we to pray for? For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I actually believe that though it just says kings and people in high positions, what Paul is really trying to get at is that, that this is an all-encompassing text that means that we pray for our leaders inside and outside the church. We pray for people inside and outside the church. We pray for those that know God and those that don't know God inside and outside the church. And that we would pray that we ourselves would know him more. As a body together. The reality is that as we become a people that pray. As we begin to exercise prayer not only in our private lives but also corporately. Things will begin to change. And so you might be wondering, well, when does this corporate time of prayer happen? Well, that's a great question. Next Sunday at 9 a.m., we will have time for corporate prayer. We started this last month, actually, and had some people come, and we prayed together as the church. And so once a month, on the second Sunday of every month, I want us to gather for corporate prayer. To pray together. Also, Congregational Care is working on a weekly prayer time. On a time when there will be at least three people that are committed to gathering together and praying for our church. Praying for the people in the church. Praying for our leaders and our staff. Praying for me. once a week, and that will also be open to anyone that could come. Prayer is going to be the thing that changes us and transforms us as a church. It doesn't matter how many programs we add. It doesn't matter all the little things that we change. If we are not first and foremost a praying church, a praying people, nothing is going to change. I actually want to read as I close from a book that changed my life on prayer. It's called Red Moon Rising. It's about the 24-7 prayer movement in Europe. But there's this one passage that just 
stirred me so much for prayer as a young Christian. It says this, J. Edwin Orr, a widely respected historian in a message called Prayer and Revival, described the situation in America in the 1780s. Drunkenness was epidemic. The streets were not judged to be safe after dark. What about the churches? The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. In a typical congregational church, the Reverend Samuel Shepherd of Lenos, Massachusetts, in 16 years had not taken one young person into fellowship. The Lutherans were so languishing that they discussed uniting with Episcopalians who were even worse off. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York, Bishop Samuel Provost, quit functioning. He confirmed no one for so long that he decided he was out of work. And so he took up other employment. And the Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, that the church was too far gone to ever be redeemed. The great philosopher Voltaire averred, and the author Tom Paine echoed, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. This is the 1780s, mind you. And then he goes on to talk about what it looks like on university and college campuses and how they're burning books and having anti-Christian plays in universities. And on these same universities, they took polls. How many of you were Christian? On some, they found none. And on the most evangelical, they found two. But then... It's hard to believe that this was taking place in America 200 years ago. But war continues, God intervened. And he, dis- and he did so by mobilizing his people to pray. A prayer movement started in Britain through William Carey, Andrew Fuller, John Sutcliffe, and other leaders who began what the British called the Union of Prayer. Hence, the year after John Wesley died in 1970, or 1791, The second great awakening began and swept Great Britain. In New England, there was a man of prayer named Isaac Bacchus, a Baptist pastor, who in 1794, when conditions were at their worst, addressed an urgent plea for prayer for revival to the pastors of every Christian denomination in the United States. You see, the second great awakening was birthed in a place or the first great awakening was birthed in a place of prayer. The second great awakening was also birthed in a place of prayer. Only that time it started on college campuses. This time, after a national gathering, there's one thing that stuck with me. One of the preachers said, we are primed for a third great awakening. But will God's people commit themselves to prayer? Will we be a church that prays? Will we be a praying people for God and for His movement in our lives? I believe that if we do, we just won't see things shift in our church. We'll see things shift in our world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You. God, we ask that we would be a praying people. God, I want us to be a people 
that are so in love with you, that so wants to connect with you, that so wants to commune with you, God, that there would be holes in our jeans, in our pants. God, I just want us to know you, God, and that in knowing you, we connect people to you and that people would truly know who you are. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.